Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokanwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Tom Riley, Manager of AXA WF Framlington Robotech Fund. If you have a large portfolio, you might have some small allocations to specialist funds alongside your core holdings in broad equity funds. For example, funds focused on technology shares. But technology is in fact a very broad sector, so in recent years a number of funds have emerged that focus on subsectors within this area, such as AXA WF Framlington Robotech Fund. Tom, what exactly is Robotech? So I think when you think of Robotech, it's actually a lot broader than robotics, as the name might suggest. So what we're looking at is how technology is changing many different sectors of the economy. So intelligence going into transportation to help with driving applications, not necessarily driverless vehicles, but making driving more intelligent, more sensible, more capable. We're also looking at technology going into healthcare, things like robotic surgery and patient monitoring as well as the things you may think around sort of typical robotics, around industrial automation, industrial software, factory intelligence. Right, okay. So why would you invest in a fund that only focuses on this area of technology, say, as opposed to a broad technology fund? I think actually the the history of this fund is myself and my colleague Jeremy Gleeson have run the um, AXA Framlington um, Global Technology Fund. Jeremy's been leading that for 11 years now. And about four or five years ago, we started to notice that a lot of beneficiaries of technology change didn't necessarily fall in the typical technology sector. So these are some of the areas I talked about around sort of healthcare around automotive, those wouldn't fit in a technology fund. So we started to think of actually a broader investment vehicle to be able to capitalise on these trends. So I'd actually argue that um, when you look at the sectors that we invest in, in Robotech, um, you get a broader array of, of areas of the economy. But also there are some areas of a typical technology fund that you don't invest in, such as maybe PCs. So what are these areas that uh, AXA WF Hamilton Robotech Fund invests in? Um, so to touch on a few of them, um, so the automotive space is undergoing a lot of change at the moment. And there are two main main changes going on. One is the electrification of the powertrain, so moving away from typical combustion engines towards hybrids and electric vehicles. The other change, and this is the area we're particularly focused on, is intelligence going into vehicles. So we don't know whether driverless cars will be with us in 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, um, and there's a lot to be overcome in terms of regulation, in terms of insurance, in terms of ultimately overall consumer acceptance. Are we as society happy to be driven by a robot? But in the interim, there's a lot of new technologies going into cars to help with, uh, with driving applications. So these are things like ADAS systems, advanced driver assistance systems. And this can be the technology that when the car in front of you stops, your car automatically starts to slow down. These can be systems, lane departure warnings. So when you drift on a motorway, the car will alert you to this. And what we can see is this incremental technology continuing to be rolled out. In fact, nowadays, to get the modern NCAP four or five star safety rating systems, you need these uh, safety systems embedded within a vehicle. So what we're doing in terms of investments are investing in the semiconductor companies, the chip companies that are helping provide intelligence into the vehicles, but also some of the system integrators that are helping the OEMs, so the big car manufacturers, incorporate this technology.
So on that note, do you invest in, let's say, broader companies that are involved with technologies or are there specific companies that focus just on sort of robotech and what, what you've been describing? So we've identified um, probably around 400 companies that have exposure to this theme and there's a number of them and these are typically small caps that are we can think of as pure plays on this theme. So where, say, more than 50% of the revenue is directly uh, attributed to robotics and, and automation. But actually there's a number of large companies that are gradually changing their business models to embrace this technology. These can be some of the mega cap technology companies, so the likes of Google, uh, that are using their data handling abilities to start to develop uh, autonomous vehicles within their Waymo business unit. But also when you look at some of the traditional or, or more traditional uh, industrial conglomerates, so companies like Siemens, a big German industrial conglomerate, actually the way it's been reshaping its business over the last 10 years, it's far more focused on robotics and automation. So over the last few years, they've spun off their healthcare business They've joint ventured um, their renewable energy business. Uh, they're in the process of merging their, their transportation, their train business. And actually what you're left with at the core of Siemens is something called Digital Factory, which is the largest industrial software company in the world. And when you're starting to see corporations make these sorts of changes, embracing the way that they feel the world is changing, that's very interesting for us as investors too. Okay, so you have these um, large global corporations um, like Siemens, like you mentioned. What would be examples perhaps of some smaller, more focused companies that you invest in? Um, so some of them could be um, sort of small component suppliers that go in a traditional robotics arm. So whilst we would invest in some of the leading robot manufacturers, so these could be companies like, uh, like Fanuc or Yaskara in Japan, Actually, if you were to crack open a robot that's made anywhere in the world, it will most likely have uh, Japanese-made uh, gears in them uh, from a company called Nabtesco. Uh, so a company called Nabtesco that has almost a monopolistic um, uh, position in the world because it's able to produce these uh, highly precise gears that are used for controlling robotic arms, they have dominant market share, they have very high margins, and they've got a very loyal customer base. So for us as investors, that kind of opportunity can be very interesting. And now you mentioned uh, uh, Siemens, which I believe is German, and you mentioned Japanese companies. So are there specific parts of the world where you find these opportunities? So when we look geographically, about 55% of the investment universe and the portfolio are invested in North America. Um, the North American tech companies have been very good over the years in developing particularly software, but most importantly, commercializing that software. Um, so that's very heavily represented. When we look elsewhere in the world, Japan, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the investment universe. Uh, Japan have a very strong heritage in robotics and automation. When we look at Europe, that's somewhere around 20% of the portfolio. When you think of what Europe have been historically very strong at, there are companies like Siemens, but there is also a lot of the automotive supply chain there. So some of the chip manufacturers that are selling their components into self-driving cars, many of these are European. The area where we're somewhat underweight is emerging markets. So it's less than 5% um, 5 of the portfolio for us. 
However, when you look at the companies we own and their sales exposure, so where they're selling their products, where they're generating their revenues, about 30 to 35% of that is derived from emerging markets. So we feel we're investing in best of breed Japanese, Western technologies that are exporting to China at the moment. We keep a very close eye on the Chinese market. Um, The technology gap is certainly closing. Uh, at the moment, but we still feel there's quite a significant difference in terms of quality of some of the products being manufactured locally in China versus some of the international champions. Okay. Now, do you think the types of companies you invest in this fund have the potential to outperform broad equity indices and broader technology funds? So what we're doing um, with this Robotech fund, and in fact um, all of the thematic funds we're running at AXA, is we've identified five areas of the economy that we feel will be growing structurally faster than the broader economy. So these these areas have a core growth rate of about 10% year on year for the next decade. So we believe that by investing in best of breed companies that are able to capitalize on these trends, um, that, that we have an opportunity to do so. We've been running this strategy for about three years and the results have been very good so far. One of the things you do need to remember, though, is despite this being a very strong, or we believe a very strong structural growth opportunity, some of these companies are selling into more cyclical end markets. So things like industrial end markets are more reliant either on China capex cycles or automotive capex cycles. And that's part of the reason we've applied a more balanced approach to Robotech. It's not just industrial robotics. We're looking at healthcare, which is less economically sensitive, transportation, which is on a different cycle. And so we believe that by actively managing the portfolio, we're able to provide a little bit more balance and take out some of the volatility uh, of of the portfolio. How volatile has um, AXA, WF, Planet and Bulbatrek been so far relative to broad technology funds and what do you expect its volatility to be in future? So when you compare it to a broader technology fund, it's been slightly less volatile over the last three years. That is because some of its um, some of its um, components being less economically sensitive. So we originally launched this strategy back at the end of 2015, and quite early on in 2016, the oil price fell quite sharply. So the oil price fell to $27. There was concerns around a China GDP hard landing. But actually, our portfolio was quite resilient. And this came from the fact that about 15 to 20 percent of it was healthcare companies. Healthcare companies have very little correlation, say, to the oil price or to industrial activity. And so by being able to mute some of this through diversification into other sectors, uh, we feel we can take out some of the volatility. And thus far, it's been slightly less volatile than a traditional technology fund. Okay. Volatility, of course, does not necessarily equate to risk. So how would you say in terms of risk um, does the fund compare to a broader technology fund? I think that there's two elements there. One is the underlying risk of the individual uh, stocks that you're holding. And I think that's that's similar across any portfolio where it's up to the fund management teams and the analysts to do their proper due diligence um, on the companies. One of the things that's important around nascent technologies is understanding the commercialization potential of them. And one thing we're always quite keen to stress within the Robotech Fund is 
that whilst it sounds perhaps a little bit futuristic, some of the opportunities that we're investing in, it really needs to be grounded in the real world. So when we're investing in companies, we're not investing in blue sky technologies. These are companies with proven technologies, proven um, uh, end markets for their products uh, and profitability. So the average profit margin is actually higher on, on the stocks in my portfolio than in the broader market. And by understanding the commercial applications of these individual companies or individual products and trying to get that correct, that eliminates an element of the single stock risk. The other risk I talked about in the portfolio um, is this strong structural growth theme of robotics and automation but selling into slightly more cyclical end markets. And that's something we believe that we can mitigate to an extent um, by having this more balanced approach. But, of course, structural growth can't necessarily overpower a cycle uh, at, at all times. And so there is an element of volatility and risk associated with that. OK. Now, technology is an evolving area. So how do you try to avoid investing in companies whose products might become obsolete due to new developments? I think what, we're, what we spend a lot of time is looking at next generation technologies and there's, there's a few different ways we do this. Um, myself and Jeremy Gleason, who are the fund managers or the main fund managers on this portfolio, spend a lot of time away from our desks. So between the two of us, we'll meet management teams of probably 400 companies a year. And we do this by going into their offices, seeing their facilities, uh, understanding the technology. I also spend a lot of time at trade shows, um, and trade shows are a very good place to see where new technologies are first being deployed, um, really commercialized for the first time. It's a great indication of when uh, new concepts are being commercialized, so coming out of the R&D labs and, and, and getting ready for, for mass market. And so we believe that by identifying um, the timing of new technologies and when they come, that can either be a good opportunity for us to invest in those technologies or it can raise some flags on where disruption could be coming from and we can raise that with the companies that we're investing in and perhaps modify our views if we see fit. Thank you, Tom. A really interesting insight into the world of Robotech. Asset manager RWC is planning to launch a new equity income fund. There are already many funds which invest in this area, but this one is going to take a slightly different approach. Taha, you've been looking at this, so how is RWC's new fund going to differ from its peers? Well, as you, as you said, there, you know, there's quite a few um, equity income funds out there, and most of them invest in quality stocks. So that's you know reliable companies, big companies, where you can see revenue growth and dividend growth, and everything's kind of staple, and you expect you expect basically the tobacco <coughs> and healthcare usuals. Yeah, you know yeah. The, the thing you yeah, see yeah. in almost every equity mm. income fund. But w- what you're going to get in this one is um, is taking a value st- strategy. So what that means is you're going to be buying stocks that are either in an unpopular sector or having some kind of short-term difficulties. And what that means is their share price has been depressed, but um, it's depressed below the fundamental value of the company. So the, the kind of company's business line itself might be okay, but there's some sentiment issues around the stock itself. Um, these stocks can still provide dividends, but their share price growth might be limited depending on how long the situation is going on. Okay, so is value investing a good approach at the moment? But this is this is a difficult answer. So growth versus value is is a big debate that most people have in the market. If you look at the last few years, growth has been incredibly dominant over value. It's not been any situation apart from a few blips in 2016 when value started to outperform. However, if you look at the UK market in particular, there's been such a depression on some of these stocks that a reversion is almost inevitable. You, what you're waiting for is some kind of 
economic cyclical upturn for these value stocks to really outperform. Arguably, that should have happened by now, but it hasn't, and that's because the Brexit uncertainty has caused a bit of a pause on the UK market. It was it's kind of just stayed where it is, whereas you, know, you look at the US market and it's stormed on ahead. Um, but there's almost every expectation that this is now going to take place at some point, so perhaps launching a value fund at this time is a, is a great time to enter the value kind of investment style. Okay, now who are the new funds managers, and what's their experience of value style investing? It's going to be run by uh, Nick Purves and Ian Lance. So they joined RWC in 2010. Uh, prior to that, they were at Schroders, and they ran the Schroder Income Fund before then, and they've done that for a long time. So these are, with the risk of perhaps being insulting, they, they are veteran managers, I think. I think it's safe to call them that. They've been doing this kind of investing style for quite some time. Obviously, value income investing is unusual, but um, probably not unique. So are there any other UK equity income funds that um, invest via this type of approach? Yeah, the, the first one is actually the old Schroeder Income Fund. Um, it's been run by two new managers uh, since 2010, but they've carried on the same style and have, have done very well out of, you know, relative to that style. This, it's a very good fund. The value name that always comes up, particularly in the UK, is, uh, is Ben Whitmore. So he runs at the Jupiter Income Fund. He's a very good value manager, very well respected in terms of value investing, but his income fund is there as well. And at ManGLG, you have the uh, UK Income Fund, which is run by Henry Dixon, perhaps, you know, a more a rising star of the UK value space, but still a very good fund and a very good stock picker. You could also argue managers like Neil Woodford and Mark Barnett run value strategies. However, these the funds that I've just mentioned and the RWC fund are going to be more deep value. Like they're looking for really special situations, whereas Neil Woodford and Mark Barnett are looking for good pricing opportunities so the valuation is a big thing but they are looking for kind of growth stocks at the same time now what sort of income is rwc's new fund going to aim to generate so it's going to be looking for a yield of four percent but they're going to try and do this from a quite concentrated portfolio of around 25 to 45 stocks with an annual management charge of 0.65 percent we haven't got any information on the ongoing charges yet but hopefully we'll get that in more time okay and finally when's the fund actually going to launch uh, so in october um and hopefully yeah, we'll provide you more details as we get them but it seems like a, an interesting opportunity as it stands thank you taha an interesting development to look out for the financial conduct authority the Financial Services Regulator, is conducting an investigation into whether investment platforms are competitive and fair to consumers. And the Financial Conduct Authority, or FCA for short, has recently published an update on what it has found so far. Taha, you've been ploughing through this update. So what has the regulator's research on investment platforms brought to light so far? I think uh, I think ploughing is the right word. It was a very, very long report, but some quite interesting things to come out of it. Um, I think the first thing I found this surprising, and it sounded as if by the wording from the FCA that they found it surprising as well, is that um, most consumers are happy. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be a kind of service level general issue in the, in the market. Uh, it's worth, worth remembering that this was a competition study as well, so it wasn't looking how what platforms were doing is looking to see whether they were competitive but as a general rule it did some consumer research and found that they were quite happy but that doesn't mean it was all rosy there's definitely some interesting things to pick out that is very important if you're using a, a direct to consumer platform one of the big things was is that switching is quite hard so the fca did find that most people didn't want to switch as i said they were quite happy but um, there was a, a small cohort of people that did want to switch but couldn't and they found it very difficult so this was about seven percent of people that wanted to do that and they couldn't switch, and that's obviously a big problem because the platform market is quite concentrated. It has some very big players. We know we all know the names of Hargreaves, Fidelity, and Interactive Investor, etc., etc. But if if you can't switch between these platforms because it's too hard, 
what it kind of implies is that these platforms don't have to provide the best value or the best service because once you've signed up, they know you're going to stay there for a long time and then everything becomes a bit kind of stagnant like you see in the, the kind of current account banking sector, you know, where you just, you've been the same bank for 20 years and they stop caring about you and that's the kind of thing that affects competition in the long term. Why is it so hard to switch between platforms? So what the, the few things that the FCA found was is that one is that most of them charge exit fees. So Investors Chronicles did some research and it was in one of our March issues. Um, and so on the, in the ISA industry, 10 out of the 12 platforms that we looked at, and these are 10 out of the 12 largest ones, all charged exit fees. And some of them were so high, some of them as high as £25 per line of stock to switch. You know, if you have a small portfolio, that is incredibly prohibitive. Like you cannot move if you have to pay that much to charge. The other issues were it's too time consuming. The FCA said it could be anything from a couple of weeks to months, even longer. Obviously, that causes issues of being time out of the market and things like that as well. And it's just, it's very, you know, it's tiring and tiresome and people don't like doing that. And the other thing was, as I mentioned, time out of the market. So there's something called in specie. And what that means is that if you're switching platforms, what you have to do rather than just taking your holdings across to a new platform is you have to sell down into cash, transfer the cash and then buy in again. And that if it takes you months to do that, that is a long time to spend out of the market. You also have tax implications of having to sell down to the cash in the first place. Is the regulator going to do anything about this? It's an interim paper, but it's made some suggestions about what it might do. There's some wording to suggest it might look at banning exit fees, which obviously be one of the biggest things that might come out of this study in itself. Um, but yeah, an interesting idea. Obviously, if something is, if something stops you from moving because it's too expensive, then that's a bad thing. So banning exit fees might be a sensible idea. Uh, it's going to work with the industry to see how important these are. But the interesting thing it did find is that exit fees are only really common in the direct-to-consumer space. On the advisor platforms, they're not that common. So I think what that does show is that the platforms might be slightly abusing the D2C market rather than it being a necessity of their financial performance. Now, you mentioned not all is rosy, and there were a few things. So other than platform switching, what does the regulator not like? Um, so this is another a quite interesting thing as well, where um, what it found was private investors are holding too much cash on their platforms. So an average of um, of assets on, on the platforms at the moment, about 8.8% was in cash, which is quite high. Uh, and the main thing, reason being is that platforms are not a good place to be holding cash for the long term. Obviously, if it's short term, you're just holding cash before you find the next fund or sh- stock you want to buy, it's fine. But long term, uh, platform charges are applied to cash which means that if you're getting an interest rate of 0.25%, but your platform charges 0.45%, which is about right for what platforms charge, your cash is losing money no matter what. There is no situation where you're making money on that. Also, you know, you have cash ices that are free. So there's, there's an issue with holding long-term cash on platforms, and the FCA is quite concerned about this. What's it going to do about it? Um, here, there's, there's nothing it can actually do, because obviously these are active decisions people make about leaving cash on a platform. But what it thinks is important is that platforms start telling investors that this is a bad idea. So we might see some changes to the disclosure requirements that platforms have to make. So if you're, if you're holding cash on a platform, your platform might kind of write to you or send you a message saying, do you know what, this probably isn't the best idea. Platforms are not a good place for cash. So we might see some changes around that. Okay. Now, do the problems with investment platforms just relate to the companies which run them? Yeah, so this was uh, another interesting thing as well. The consumer satisfaction is obviously quite is there and is quite good. But what the FCA did found is there's some evidence to point that people are kind of confusing their own satisfaction with their platform with investment performance. 
Now, obviously, it's important to remember that platforms are a medium. They, they have no impact on the your... The broker, basically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The broker, so modern-day broker, any, yeah. Any performance you get is from the underlying funds or the stocks that you own on the platform. The only thing the platform does is charge you to be able to do that. So, if anything, it has, you know, not a negative impact because you're paying for a service, but there's a platform fee. So, there's no, it has no positive impact on your performance. But, obviously, markets have been doing quite well for a while, so people are very happy because, well, their money's growing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your platform is doing the best it can do or providing value for money. Um, and that's, that's quite important because you need to be able to differentiate between what the underlying funds are doing and what your platform provider is doing. But the other thing, and I think this is the most important thing, um, is how little attention private investors are paying to fees. Only 44% of people the FCA found shopped around or looked at more than one platform before kind of choosing which platform to use. Most of them either went on brand awareness or from recommendation of a friend and i think i think that's quite important because there's there's not many things where most people would just go and buy something based on a brand or awareness imagine if people did that with cars where they just went and picked a car but you know half of people that bought cars just went and picked one car because they did that it'd be madness no one does this in any other kind of industry so people need to be shopping around more as well um 57 percent of people didn't even look at the fees that they were paying before they selected the platform as well but only 14% of people said this information was difficult to find. So it's kind of there's some slightly worrying statistics that came from this to show that people aren't really putting the attention to picking a platform that they should be. Okay. And um, how can investors go about helping themselves to get a better deal? Um, so, like, I think there's, there's, an, there's two sides to this. So there's some disclosures can be better. The FCA thinks maybe disclosures can be improved by platforms. It's going to... There's some regulations that came in in January. It's going to look at them to see how they're working before it makes any changes. But it... Overall, the FCA thinks that kind of platform disclosures are okay. So this has to be a bit more of a proactive thing from uh, from investors, I think. So, you know, magazines like Investors Chronicle, we, we compare platforms um, <laughs> quite a lot. We have information on our website. We even have a, a kind of comparison tool which you can use on the website. There's also the main thing of making sure you look at your platform statements. There's a, there's a total cost of ownership figure on there. And that's the most important thing that you need to be looking at, how much you're paying for your platform. And that includes kind of all the underlying fund costs and the service costs and transaction costs. And that's that's the most important thing. You need to be aware of of what you're paying. There was, there was 29% of people this study found that weren't even sure if they paid a platform fee. Uh, and that's it's, it's madness, as yeah. I can see. But, yeah. They're getting something for free, goodness In, me. Indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Taha. And see this week's money section for his full roundup on the FCA's findings on investment platforms. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more about RWC's forthcoming fund launch, the FCA's investigation into investment platforms and technology funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.